You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment. This is the Deepening Your Practice class, and uh, it's meant as an intermediate or advanced class. Everyone is welcome to attend it. Um, but um, the the level of discourse is, is not going to be directed toward uh, beginning meditators. And so if you you have good equanimity with confusion, and if you're at the beginning, then this is a good place to be. Um, we are working with uh, compassion for all sentient beings this evening. And one of the things about this practice, which is different than the other stages of compassion practice, is that we make all sentient beings a single object, no one excluded. It's an interesting time uh, to be um, engaged in this practice of compassion for all people because the world is in in such turmoil. Um, We have this um, COVID period that's happening, a, a worldwide pandemic for which there's really no treatment other than uh, taking care of other people. And we have the, the, this is really an outcome of climate change. And so we have that also that's lurking there. Um, And then we have the inequalities of the world, which are disproportionately affecting some groups and less so other groups. And then we have actors in all of this, um, particularly in, in this country around the response of the, the government and what we are tasked, uh, what we task them to do and what they're able or not able to do, which has a, a long history of how we've uh, related to uh, these subjects in the past. So our experience in this country is different than the experiences that other people have in other countries based on that experience. In Canada, they've had 9,000 deaths from COVID. If you adjust for population, they have had, uh, they would have had 27,000 deaths. Uh, They have a public health system so that when they needed to call it up, it was available and they could respond in a way that that, uh, provided care for everybody. And we don't have that that in this country so that when we would have needed to call it up, it wasn't in place and it wasn't possible to create it fast enough that we could catch up. And so we've had uh, 10 times that many deaths. We often talk about that as herd, herd immunity, but we're not prey, we're predators. So I think pack immunity is a better idea. Um, But when we talk about a single group of all sentient beings together, then we can't pick out uh, who we think are the bad agents and who are the good agents. Everyone is in together. Uh, Dan Brown uses the, the metaphor often of, it's the sun shining. The sun doesn't choose who to shine on and who not to shine on based on some 
evaluation of their worthiness. It just shines. And everyone who can stand in front of it is, is uh, you know, affected by that. Um, I was reading in the paper uh, and it said that um, with climate change that in this country only, um, based on this, the, the change in sea level, 18 million people will have to leave uh, where they're living. And we uh, um, value real estate and ownership, home ownership in this country. And so, but we really have are these properties along the coasts that will be affected by sea level rise. They will essentially become underwater and uh, valueless in that sense. And then how, uh, as we as a culture or as an economy, will we absorb that loss? Are we going to simply allow the people that have um, property there to, to lose all of that? But 18 million people in this country from that aspect of climate change alone are going to need to be relocated and reabsorbed in some way. I talked about this last time uh, that uh, Al Weiwei made a, a documentary called Human Flow in which he said that there were currently 68 million uh, refugees moving. Um, the New York Times published a series of maps that showed how climate change is going to affect the way that the, the globe changes. Um, areas that will become too hot for human habitation and then areas that will change in terms of the, the temperature range, which will affect then food production. And if you looked at the map of this country, uh, the whole south, uh, the whole southern portion of the country will become too hot to grow the crops that we're currently growing. And that the 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 tropical aspect of weather patterns will move upward and so that you'll have places like Missouri now have the, the weather that uh, New Orleans has had or Florida has had and that the um, the Midwest that main band of growing that we have is moving north and so uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan are going to be now the, the place where in this country we can grow food um, and in the same way that we grew it in uh, across the whole of the Midwest. But the, the land up there isn't as fertile as it is uh, further south. And so these big changes that are coming in terms of uh, climate are mainly going to impact our capacity to grow the food at the same level that we currently grow it. And so that will change our relationship to that. Um, where I live in Southern California is going to be too hot. Unless you're uh, above 4,000 feet. Uh, if you looked at the maps, it's an interesting idea. I say, you know, um, sarcastically, I guess is a good way. I was really hoping for a few years of beachfront property before I had to move. 
<laughs> because if you look at the maps of sea level rise, where I'm currently living, will be underwater. Um, maybe not in my lifetime, but the the original estimates they put out to 100 years, and now they've uh, pulled it back to 50 years. But some of us can reasonably expect to be alive in 50 years. Uh, I will be very old and moving very slowly if I'm alive in 50 years, but uh, <laughs> maybe by then we'll all be content to upload ourselves into a computer and live uh, an endless simulation. In the New York Times where they published this, which I think was from uh, the scientific review that they published all of this finally. 19% um, of the planet is going to become uninhabitable within 50 years based on temperature. And it is actually currently home to around 4 billion people. So 4 billion people are going to be displaced from where they are and have to relocate and settle in a different way. We live in a world now where there's 68 million refugees and the immigration issue is incredibly contentious. And, and for the first time, actually, we live in a world that has big data involved in all of this stuff. I don't know if you've been tracking that and, and, and to really understand that with the social media the way that it is and the capacity to track uh, people's preferences and to custom tailor uh, advertising to small, you know, almost individual groups. Um, big data can, or they think that they can, literally change the, the position of 10% of the population in any way that they want to with the, with the tools that are currently present, which is enough to shift arguments one way or another, or elections one way or another. Uh, maybe you saw some of the the documentaries that came out around Cambridge Analytica, which was um, thought to be responsible for putting uh, our current president in office, for getting Brexit through, for getting Johnson as the PM in, in uh, England, uh, for causing the genocide in Myanmar. That that effect. In this country, they removed the requirement for news to be truthful or information to be truthful uh, when Reagan was in, in office. And so we've had this 40 years of uh, information that, that could be presented as factual, but didn't have to be factual uh, by removing the penalties for that, which used to be in place. Other countries still have libel laws and and requirements that news be truthful. For instance, in Canada, the news has to be truthful and based on fact, whereas it, it doesn't in our country. And so what you have is these uh, perceptions that, are, that can be wildly distorted and, and really there's no reliable way of determining um, what's true and what isn't true. And it can affect uh, the way that you view things. Um, we do take in data, uh, process that data, and then create this 
experience of conceptual reality that we push out and that um, experience of con conceptual reality, if we don't have a sense of how we've made it, uh, can be extremely compelling and uh, it can inform how we make our intentions and our action. Um, in Buddhism, of course, there is concern about uh, taking an ethical stance and being clear in your intention and clear in your action so that the actions that you are taking are skillful. And then the outcome of that is meant to lead to uh, uh, a good karma. Karma is this accumulation of the intentions and actions that direct you to where you are now. Um, but if you don't have the information, um, oops, and you're, and you're using the information that isn't actually accurate and informing these intentions and actions, it's easy to get skewed. In Myanmar, there's a 94%, at least the last uh, polling I saw, 94% approval for the military's action of genocide against the Rohingya population. It, it's, a, it's a very solid support for that. Uh, in this country, of course, uh, and in most of the West, uh, it, 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 it is uh, considered a genocide. In the first year that the, the, the army attempted to push the Rohingya out of the country, um, the Bengalis, the Bengali army stood at the border and shot them as they were attempting to flee the um, Miramar army. And the Miramar army relented and uh, allowed them to return to their villages. And then the next year they repeated the push to get them out. And this time the Miramar army did not relent, pushing them into the, into the uh, wall of the Bengali army that was firing. And then the Bengali army relented and allowed them to cross. I was talking last time about this in terms of these actions that people take that then hit us and in our way of holding the understanding of the world, our uh, ethical stance in the world, some of these actions can become unforgivable. I don't mean that there's a universal quality of action that is unforgivable, um, although the canon does uh, choose some of these. For instance, it's, a, it's an unforgivable action to kill a monk in the Buddhist canon. But I'm talking about what it is that you can uh, repair and uh, the way that you can hold somebody uh, and, the, and accept the action that they take and repair your capacity to continue to trust them and continue to be in relationship to them in a way that would allow you to be unguarded, unprotected. And one of the things about the current polarization of, of the political scene in this country anyway, is that, that uh, we are beginning to view each side uh, of this as 
engaged in unforgivable actions which we can't uh, repair. And then we come to this practice of compassion for all sentient beings where all of the people, including the people that are unforgivable, are, are needing to be held in this single uh, compassionate container. And so um, even if somebody engages in one of these unforgivable actions, it isn't, um, it doesn't relieve us of our obligation then to hold the space for them. So then how does one do that, I guess, is the, the question. We still are responsible for our own karma and we're still responsible for the collective karma on which we participate in. You can see the differences of that in comparing the public health system in Canada that was able to respond to the coronavirus in a way that, that minimized the deaths and that because we lack that in this country, we weren't able to respond in the, in the cost of that and that collective uh, karma that plays out over uh, decades. So how do we come into this place where we can hold that space? One of the aspects of collective, of collective karma that's uh, challenging is that you can advocate to the full extent that you can advocate and still the collective karma goes in a way that you would not want it to go. And yet you're not relieved in any way of your um, uh, space and responsibility in, in those actions. How do you uh, continue, uh, how do you find resilience to keep moving forward in this so that you're still engaged and still responding in the way that you need to so that you're holding your ethical stance and your intention and action in a good way. And so this is coming into this practice and understanding in some sense what compassion is in a deep way. When, you, when we get out to this place of all sentient beings, of course, we're mainly, main, mainly holding space for people that we don't know and, and are unlikely ever to encounter. And with, um, say, an estimated 7 billion people, uh, even in a lifetime, if you tacked up uh, every single person that you'd encountered, even if you included everyone driving to and fro on the freeway, you wouldn't be approaching anywhere near that number. And so this is mainly an intention. We radiate outward in all 10 directions, this experience of compassion, this willingness to hold the suffering experience of the world. And then, uh, continue to hold that space the best that we can. Compassion, you know, when you're working with somebody individually is very specific, you hold space for them, you attune to them, you place your attention on them, they place their attention on you. You know that you're engaged in that mutual attention. 
you allow an empathetic connection to open. So you have to be vulnerable to allow that to happen. You touch into the experience of their emotional um, present moment and they touch into yours. Compassion in the Buddha sense is narrowly focused around other people's suffering. So you're tuning into the suffering experience of someone else with the intention to help hold that space for them so that they can find the suffering experience that they're engaged in more tolerable. You bring your capacity for emotional regulation to the suffering experience of someone else. You hold that empathetic experience and attempt to regulate it. And as that uh, empathy exchanges these uh, experiences back and forth, they can become more regulated because you're bringing your capacity to regulate their experience. You have to be careful here, of course, if their suffering experience is so great that you can't hold the space and it begins to dysregulate you, it's better to disconnect the empathetic experience and re-regulate yourself and then open again if you can. But in the practice of compassion for all sentient beings, that isn't what we're doing. We're not individually attuning to anybody. We're holding the whole group of all sentient beings as one thing. Um, uh, when we were in Myanmar, um, a group of us have gone uh, for several years. The Sayadaw was very specific about this. You don't want to allow the mind to contract at all around any individuals or any smaller groups within the group of all of us. You want to hold all of us and uh, exclude no one from this. And so we're moving into this area, which is really the, the esoteric or the uh, metaphysical end of the Buddhist teaching that you are radiating, radiating this out in all directions, which is being received by all sentient beings, much in the way uh, that the sun shines and, and, and uh, all people are uh, connected to this just a beacon, a light filling all space. Radiating out the desire to have people relieved from their suffering. And so in that sense, it seems like quite a beautiful practice. In uh, the traditional way of practicing, practicing this in Myanmar, it's mainly done as a walking meditation. So eyes are open, the focus is outward and you're walking back and forth. Several ways to do that. So some people like to walk back and forth, say eight or 10 paces apart, and it's quick back and forth. And then some people like to walk in these long tracks. Um, for instance, um, at the, the monastery there, there was a, uh, a path around the edge of the monastery that uh, went through uh, a small wooded area or forest. And to walk quickly in, 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 a, in a practice of com compassion or loving kindness, to go around the track once took about 20 minutes to give you an idea that when we were doing a more uh, Vipassana-oriented, concentration-oriented walking meditation, it took between three and four hours to walk 
the same track and that slow, deliberate walking meditation. But I've always preferred that uh, walking these big loops as a way of, of practicing this. But you can practice it in a formal sitting meditation. You make the intention to radiate the compassion to all sentient beings. You're practicing typically with eyes open. If I practice formally doing this here in the West uh, as a sitting practice, I do it in front of a window so that eyes open, I can look out at the, the world around and, and uh, create this visual image of all of us together. We don't really uh, do much about visual thinking because the eyes are open and the external sight space tends to dominate internal visual thinking. It is possible, of course, for internal visual thinking to expand outward and fill uh, the external sight space, but uh, mainly in householders' practice, you don't notice that happening much. And we're not attempting to generate any particular feeling state in the body. Whatever arises in that feeling state is fine. We want to cause the mind state of compassion to arise and then view the world through that mind state. In the beginning, of course, it's just to figure out that there are mind states and you can create them and that there are different mind states that affect the creation of visual, uh, that create the uh, perception of conceptual reality differently. Then you begin to learn which mind states are which and then you begin to have agency in causing which mind state you want to have arise, arising. And then you hold the particular mind state that you want. So that would be sort of the middle part of the practice. And then the advanced practice is where you explore how holding a particular mind state changes the way that conceptual reality is formed and you experience conceptual reality. So what does the world of all of us together, no one excluded in that compassionate mind state look like? And how does it differ from an ordinary mind or an angry mind or a frightened mind. We are not relieved of our obligation to hold the experience of someone else's suffering because they engage in unforgivable actions as we experience them. How can you do that? <clears throat> so we, we tend to practice so developing the willingness and being able to hold the willingness to do that so that when we actually encounter somebody um, that, is, that is engaged in that, we can respond in a way that's useful. Every time responding in a way that's useful. I notice some, sometimes in the, the discourses uh, of talking this through that uh, anger can arise and easily distort my reactions to this and that that then um, becomes an unskillful response. Stephen? So with... Um mind states and locating a mind state is there um 
visual thinking and or auditorial or auditory thinking um, present at the same time a mind state is? Does that, I don't know, it's a, I don't know if I'm asking this correctly, but. Um, mind states tend to be views rather than auditory or visual thinking. And uh, how do you know a view? When we talk about the attachment side of things, in order to understand uh, and be able to mentalize a view, you would have had a, a caregiver who asked you over and over again, what's going on with you? I can't figure you out. Tell me what's happening. How are you seeing this? Why are you responding that way? Um, so that, the, that you begin to learn to describe how you're experiencing, how you're seeing things. But if you didn't have somebody that was, uh, th did that for you, you never would have done the inquiry over and over again until you could easily see what was happening. Um, or, you know, you, you could say, you seem angry, are you angry? How do you know whether you're angry or not angry? Well, you seem to be having a good time, uh, you know. Uh, in my family, if I was happy, my mother would invariably say, are you drunk? Uh, which was a, a whole different thing. But uh, that constant inquiry about, tell me what's going on inside of you. How are you seeing things? How are you experiencing it? You seem joyful, you seem happy. Uh, and then the child having to figure it out and then being able to relate it in words is the process of learning mind states. So you're saying that a child understands a joyful mind state by it being reflected back to them? By the, 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 the caregiver? Need, the need to be able to reflect back to the caregiver in answer to an inquiry. But if you didn't and have that, that, that identifies a mind state. Right. You didn't learn okay. to do it. And so now you, you have to learn to do it now. If I were to say, what, does, what is the experience of the compassionate mind like? What does that mean? What is the, how do you know that you're inclined toward the mind state of compassion? How do you know that you're inclined toward the mind state of loving kindness? How do you know that the mind is inclined toward anger or sadness or fearfulness? That's the, the question. How do you know that? And can you tell by looking at the creation of conceptual reality which mind state is present and what kind of distortion that's creating in your perceiving of the world itself. Um, do you notice that when the mind is angry, almost anything can amplify that sense of outrage? Do you know, if the, the mind is frightened and the, the mind state is fearfulness, anything can have a heightened sense of fearfulness to it. If you incline the mind toward loving kindness, what do you notice about the way that, that you experience everything? Christian? So can you think of mind states or, or recognizing them in terms of like this mind state tends to have this constellation of feelings under it? And, and if I'm having these certain feelings, then that can help me recognize the mind state or does, I mean, does that make sense? It does. Um, 
if the mind is inclined toward fearfulness, then often the reaction to the experience of conceptual reality is fear. The mind is inclined toward anger, then often the experience of the world is the things that are happening in the world produce a sense of anger or outrage. If the mind is inclined toward compassion, then uh, what you find is a willingness in the, in the response to the perception of other people's suffering to arise in response to that. The mind is inclined toward loving kindness, then, then there's a, a tenderness that arises when you experience uh, other people say in, in conceptual reality. Is that making sense? So the idea is then to begin to uh, explore how you know these things are, how do you know what's happening? Um, is the mind equanimous? This is what the Buddha described. The mind is equanimous, the reflection of the sensing experience into conceptual reality tends to be fairly representational. Uh, he used the metaphor of a mirror. We don't experience anything directly we experience it as a reflection of our sensing experience created as conceptual reality. But if the mind itself is, is equanimous, uh, it's as if the water in the bowl, which made the mirror 2,500 years ago, is clear and still. And so the reflection of the world that we see in the surface of the water is a good match for what's out there. If the mind is filled with uh, craving or lust, it's as if the water has been dyed a bright color so that when you see the reflection on the surface of the water, it's distorted by the brightness of the color. It looks vivid and uh, saturated in color, which is not an accurate reflection of what's out there. It's distorted by the, the mind state. The mind is filled with anger. It's as if the water were boiling. If you ever tried to look at the surface of a pot of boiling water and see a reflection on it, on it, it's very distorted if you can get it at all. If the mind is filled with sloth and torpor, it's as if algae had overgrown the surface. If the mind is filled with restlessness or agitation, it's as if a breeze were blowing across the surface. If the mind is filled with skeptical doubt, it's as if the water were muddied. So you have the capacity to sense, you have the object that could be sensed when there's contact, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises which is then evaluated for processing speed and then compared to the perceptual database. And then when there's a close enough match in the perceptual database, the meaning of that is, is attached to the unfixated sensing experience, and then it's projected outward into conceptual reality. Then the mind state stays between the uh, interpretation of the sensing experience and the projection outward. It's like a filter that then distorts or doesn't distort depending on what's there. We say distort, which uh, I think has a, a pejorative meaning in English, um, but uh, it could be a beneficial distortion like with compassion or uh, loving kindness or an afflictive one like anger or sadness or fearfulness. Christian? When you're describing this practice, uh, sometimes you use the term, I think sometimes you're using equanimity practice and sometimes you're calling it compassion practice. 
And I don't think those are, uh, I'm not understanding those as in interchangeable, but could you, uh, could you just um, sort of contrast those two or does compassion arise out of equanimity and you kind of need equanimity as a prereq or, what, or something? Um, I think the confusion might be that I'm using equanimity in, in two different ways. Um, in equanimity practice, uh, we're coming into, as a heart practice, we're coming into a place of acceptance and allowing. In a Vipassana practice, equanimity is something else. Um, it's a different word, really, in, in uh, the traditional uh, writings. Um, but in English, we often use the same word to have different meanings associated to it. So the equanimity of the heart practices is not the equanimity I mean when the mind is still. Um, in that sense, it means that you're not inclined towards something or away from something or spaced out. There's an absence of craving, aversion, and unconsciousness. Um, sloth and torpor, restlessness and agitation, doubt. All of those are absent, and the mind is stable and clear. In equanimity practice, we're talking about um, understanding the nature of karma and impermanence and trying to, to uh, come into relationship with other people in that way. Is that clear enough? Maybe not. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha described um, the, these qualities of uh, meditation. So the first is ardency or energy. Not too much energy so the mind is restless, not too little energy so that the mind is sleepy, a kind of balance of energy. And then the next one is sensory clarity, that you're clear about what the sensing experience is that you're tracking. The third then is mindfulness, which means you're aware of the present moment. And then the fourth one is uh, concentration. That's a basic Vipassana meditation stance. And then in the refrain for the Satipatthana Sutta, he describes other things. Um, so that you're present, um, just gonna see, I have copy handy. I, um, I don't like to paraphrase so much when I'm talking about um, texts. I don't tend to remember things very well without having them in front of me. Let's see if this has um, so it says in the refrain, in regards to uh, sensory experience, one abides contemplating uh, internally, externally, internally, and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of arising, the nature of passing, and the nature of arising and passing. Mindfulness that there is this experience is established in himself 
just for the sake of bare knowledge and for the sake of continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So in the refrain, the last sentence, and one abides uh, independent, not clinging to anything in the world, is what the Buddha talks about as equanimity, or is often the English word equanimity corresponds to, if that's making sense. You're not caught up, you're not craving something different, you're not aversive to what is, you're not unconscious, you're present in the, the experience and, uh, and uh, um, not clinging to anything in the world, just there. Uh, so when the mind is clear, when the mind state of equanimity is present, it's not clinging to anything, it's not distorting anything. And so you have this rather clean, uh, accurate perception of what's actually happening, which is different than the, the, the hard practice of equanimity. Is that clear enough? I think that in challenging times like the, the one we're facing, to be able to come into a place of equanimity and hold the suffering experience of all of us together, particularly as uh, we go through these uh, uh, coming experiences, um, which are going to be very hard to modulate uh, well and, uh, and might lend to kind of extreme responses by different subgroups of that to be able to hold the whole experience so that we don't become dislodged from this ethical stance that we're taking and that we don't engage in uh, uh, intentions and actions that are unskillful that then create for ourselves uh, uh, a uh, difficult uh, karmic response and that also we don't engage in actions that affect the collective karma in a way that's destructive not only to uh, ourselves, but everyone else. Even if uh, on a personal level, you find some of the responses that people are making uh, unforgivable or a collection of unforgivable actions that make them uh, uh, irredeemable in terms of repairing a relationship to them. It's still, even if that happens, doesn't relieve you of the obligation to that uh, participation in the collective karma and also in, in the way that you hold your own stances in the world and, and take the actions that you take. You're not, you cannot escape that. You cannot, cannot escape the outcome of those actions. And so even in the face of what is often a challenging experiences, we need to hold that space. Is that making sense? So let's do some uh, compassion for all sentient beings. Uh, I'll, I'll guide you through it. <clears throat> so how did that go? Able to hold the suffering of the whole world? <laughs> Good. We need that at this moment. Questions or comments?
So, uh, yeah. Are mosquitoes considered sentient beings? Um, <laughs> it might actually be distressing uh, where the sentience line cuts off in traditional Buddhism, which is humans and above. So animals are not considered sentient in traditional Buddhist teaching. So no. You oh, because I didn't want a mosquito. <laughs> I didn't want to wish them any metta. <laughs> They've been biting me lately, and so. Uh. <laughs> My sense, though, is that we don't get to survive in this planet if we don't take care of the the biosphere because it's all a, one big integrated system. So that those uh, uh, distinctions are not actually um, useful. You know, they've done a lot of tests on sentience, and um, I don't know if you uh, have read about that, but they wanted to see whether uh, animals had self-reference. What they mean is, could they recognize a, a picture of themselves? And so they, they took a wide swath of different kinds of uh, animals and they put a red dot on their nose and then they put them in front of a mirror. And it turned out that some uh, animals would look in the mirror and see the red dot and just wipe it off. And some animals would look in the mirror and not see, not see themselves as having a, a red dot that was different than what it was before. And it was quite surprising the, the range of, of of uh, different kinds of animals that had that capacity. You probably would uh, assume that great apes have it, they did. Uh, but also crows have it and ravens have it. They would put a dot, a red dot in the beak of a, a, a crow and when the crows saw themselves, they would just wipe it off, which had the sense that they could uh, understand that the image reflected in the mirror was themselves. Um, so we have that, that sense of consciousness widely distributed. And does that mean uh, sentience? Uh, and if it does, uh, are we not to protect them and regard them as sentient? Well, we live in a country that's 9% vegan. If you listen to the research on, on climate change, um, the number one thing that an individual can do to affect climate and f uh, affect that process would be to move to a plant-based diet. And yet only 9% of people have done that. Uh, maybe, maybe not understanding the nature of our collective karma and how that's gonna play out. Someone else? Hi. Hi. Um, I actually found it really easy to do the practice until I thought about Mitch McConnell. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, but well, actually, all beings except <laughs> Mitch McConnell. <laughs> and then I started to think, like, how can I find compassion for someone like that? Um, but I feel that it must be a way. <laughs> so, um, but I also find it really hard to do it with my eyes open. Like, I felt like oh. I, was, I was like falling asleep, but when I close my eyes, I don't fall asleep. So it's kind of weird. Interesting. 
Yeah, sometimes uh, if you, you need to, you can close the eyes. And sometimes if you need to close the eyes and, and think of an easy person and establish the mindset and then open the eyes again, that's a good way to do it. Okay, so, but you have to open your eyes, right, in this practice? In the traditional way of practicing this meditation, it's an eyes open, outwardly focusing meditation. Okay. And, and that's the way that it's taught. Okay. Good. <laughs> Christian. <laughs> I can't hear you. Can you hear me now? I can. Okay. Uh, people sort of pass through my, my thoughts sometimes, individuals, and I don't know if my, my initial thought will be kind of be like, oh, you know, maybe this is a, someone I have trouble with or, or whatever. I'll be like, this is someone I can wish well and then get back to the practice. But I don't know if, if that's still a distraction from the practice and that if, if any individual comes up, I should just kind of try and get right back to, you know, the the, the sort of totality? The, the, the Seadao is emphatic that if that happens, you should immediately push back out into the, into the expansive mode because you're allowing the mind to contract and, it, and the practice of, for all sentient beings is, is radiating continuously outward. However, if you find that somebody comes to mind and you want to change momentarily the practice and, and attend to that, you could attend to them and then come back to the practice. Uh, it's what really, I think, in, in some sense, what's useful to, uh, to you and in, in the development of your capacity for compassion. I don't like to, when I'm doing this, to allow my mind to contract because I get too easily disrailed around uh, individual suffering and it makes it hard to go back to that really expansive energy. And so I've just, I, I don't ever attend to it. I just always push right up, push back out into the expansive energy. When you're working in the other, other groupings, you know, easy, uh, close, um, and so on, that's all contractive. And so also the Seda would say that you need to balance the very contractive energy with the very expansive energy so that the the practice itself stays in balance. So if you're already practicing in the contractive side, then to try and make the expansive side as pure as possible. Okay. Uh, I, I was also wondering, uh, I mean, it seems like the sort of ultimate, uh, I don't know, feeling of this practice is that your, your sense of self sort of melts or sort of goes away and I don't know if that's similar to because I've done a little bit of like like just like I think it's shikantaza practice uh, where it seems like or, or I guess they called it silent illumin illumination was the one that I was doing and and it seemed like that was sort of the goal of the practice is that you kind of you kind of have your body and it kind of expands and so is that uh, does that make sense as far as the sort of um, idea of the practice of, of your sort of kind of merging your sense of your body with with things and that sort of distinction breaks down? Um, I think that that's, that's probably a byproduct of this practice, but it isn't the intention of it. Um, 
the self experience is coming and going constantly based on conditions. And so when, when you get in a highly concentrated state and you're radiating outward uh, and, and the mind becomes so expansive, the, the selfing experience becomes less and less pronounced, uh, even to the point where you're, you're, it's hardly noticeable. Um, it's in keeping with the teaching around no self that the, the self is impermanent and solid and ongoing and continuous and rise, arises based, based on conditions. So if the conditions aren't present for the self to arise, then there's no arising of the self-activity and you're still engaged in the activities that you're engaged in because you don't need the self-activity to have those experiences. Although you might not remember them exactly or clearly or with much detail without that. Is that helpful? I guess I mean, because uh, you were using the terms like expansive energy or contractive energy, and I'm thinking in those terms is like, is an expansive energy sort of like, like of like that sort of merging of your, your sort of physical body or your, your picture of your mind or something like that. And a contractive would be kind of more, is that an, like something felt in your body in terms of kind of your, the boundaries of your body? Maybe zooming in and zooming out is a better way of talking about it in terms of attention. A contractive energy would be zooming in to a small object and a expansive mind would be zooming out so that, that you're holding as much of the space as you can. In this case, really the direction is to hold the whole world as the space, to make the space that you're tracking as big as the whole world. That's what I mean by it. So then, then there's also a sense of force, which is going outward. Whereas with the contractive energy, it's a force that seems to be coming inward. Good enough? Or? Okay. Um, Saturday, I'm doing a, a day long on the the Dharma maps, um, progress of insight, and we're gonna, it's basically gonna be a day of practice. We'll go through the first part of the cycle. So we'll, an explanation and then half hour of practice, an explanation, then half hour of practice, moving through the first uh, series of, or first stages of insight so you can get a sense of what the cycle is like. I have another day long coming up, which is meditation and attachment for coupling, which is a, uh, a day long talking about how collaborative relationships work. Uh, this can be useful if you didn't grow up with secure attachment and didn't uh, grow up with a good understanding of how collaborative relationships work. So we'll be talking about that. Um, we're going to beginning, uh, begin a level two uh, meditation and attachment class in December. So take a look at that. We do have some scholarships available for that. On November 7th, I'm gonna be doing a reading from my book, a virtual reading from my book at 4.30 uh, Pacific time in the afternoon. Uh, my book was released uh, yesterday, and so that's quite exciting. It's called The Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect. Uh, so I'll be reading from that. And, um, and then in December, we have a, 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 a virtual retreat that goes from the 28th until the 2nd, so that's what the rest of the year is looking like. If you have need more information about any of that, take a look at the website. 
We've completed the cycle of compassion, so we no longer have to be focusing on the suffering of everything. We're going to be starting mudita, which is sympathetic joy, so it is the positive opposite of suffering. We're going to be spending the next weeks focusing uh, on joyfulness, and so that uh, should be a good relief from the uh, focus on suffering. I offer the teachings on a Donna basis. Um, Donna is the Pali word for generosity, so I offer the teachings freely, and then I hope that you'll support me and also Metagroup and what we're doing through donations. There's links for the donation uh, site on, uh, in, in the email and also on the website. Um, any amount is appreciated, and if you, you're not resourced and can't do anything, that's totally fine. We as a community will support your practice and you're totally welcome to come. There's no limit on that. Um, thank you for coming and we will see you again soon, I hope. Bye now.